All right, friends. Hey, thank you for joining us for this uh, webinar on Holy Eucharist and reverence. We're grateful to have you with us, and also with us is Father Robert Altier. He's a priest of the Diocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, Third Order Carmelite, and a teacher of the well-known EWTN series, Fundamentals of Catholicism. Welcome to the webinar, Father. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. So we decided to, uh, once again uh, to jump on together. We've been working on a private offline pro project for a while on reverence in the Eucharist. And then we hosted a webinar recently um, following the Motu Proprio, uh, which limited the Latin Mass, whatever the wording is, is good. So before we jump in, I want to set this up um, because things are uh, not making the faithful comfortable. Uh, things seem to be heating up, I guess, if you, if you will. The, uh, the motu proprio came out, and of course, uh, uh, countries like Costa Rica, the bishops there basically said no Latin mass ever. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks listening who are, who are both uh, attend the Latin mass and who attend the ordinary forum, but who are trying to figure out what's going on uh, the Nova Sorda, what's going on out there, because they're hearing now um, rumors that the, um, the, all of the heads of the orders who are Latin Mass only, like the Fraternal Society of St. Peter, are being called to Rome in September, and, and I've, I've heard that rumor myself, um, and we also, I also had confirmed by, uh, I spent some time this weekend with a scholar from Rome, uh, and he confirmed um, what, what I had heard about the motu proprio, that the, the initial document was much more harsh than what was released. But it seems that um, the general expectation is the heat is going to get turned up. So we're facing that. We're facing covid uh, the variants of COVID and all of the hysteria about that. And in general, there's a, there's a, an angst or an anxiety among faithful Catholics of whatever, whatever uh, mass you attend, those who truly love the Lord and, and believe and are trying to do their best to honor him and, and worship him in a reverent manner are, are experiencing quite a bit of anxiety about what's going on. So we're going to have a conversation about it. Father Altier celebrates the Mass in uh, both forms. Father, just out of curiosity, are you still allowed to do that in your diocese? So far, yes. Uh, all the Archbishop has required is that we would, in line with the motu proprio, ask permission from him mm -hmm. uh, to continue to offer that Mass. He has set up a uh, task force to look at how we're going to implement the, uh, the motu proprio in the archdiocese, and as of yet, there hasn't been anything definitive from that task force. So the right now, it's continue doing what you've been doing, just get permission to say the Mass. Same in my diocese, and of course, that it seems to be the predominant uh, stance of most of the bishops in the United States, or at least a good number that I follow, uh, the documents they put out quite right after, basically either said, it's, it's going to stay as it is, or we're going to study it. So in some sense, a lot of the faithful were relieved by their local response, 
but then things are getting uh, kicked up again because of COVID, governmental issues, uh, you know, um, requirements of vaccines, you know, all this stuff. So what we want to do, just to frame this a bit tonight in a way that I think will be more helpful, is our goal is to talk about things that God has given us control over, which is pretty important because there are a lot of things that he has not given us control over. Now, certainly those things he's not given us direct uh, control over or influence over, we can pray about and we should. And there's no, it is no small thing to fast and pray and make reparation for liturgical abuse, for the denial of the sacraments of the faithful, for these difficulties with people getting sick, all of that. It is no small thing. But one of the things that I'm not a fan of, and a lot of my uh, friends in the traditionalist realm, one of the things I'm not a fan of is just a lot of hand-wringing. Uh, and, and, I, and what I don't hear on a lot of the hand-wringing, Father, and, and I think this is a good place to start with you, because I know you have a, a very powerful message in this realm. What I don't, what I'm not a fan of is getting people hand-wringing and not leading them to the solution that Jesus gave to us, not leading them to a disposition, a, a, a place of holiness within which we stand as lights in the darkness rather than cowering, shaking, angry, anxious people. Can you talk a bit about the importance of disposition of soul and how we face suffering in a time like this? Yeah, what's going to be necessary is that we maintain our peace. And that peace is only going to come from union with our blessed Lord. And so he, he is our peace. And he is the Eucharist. He is what the Mass is all about. And, and so if we are upset about what's going on with the Holy Eucharist and with the Mass, it's more offensive to him than it is to us. And so all we need to do is stay united with him and trust him and know that he is going to bring about everything that we need. There's going to be persecution. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be trouble. We know that. We know that the day is going to come because scripture tells us when the daily sacrifice will be abolished. And, and so if that's the case, we need to prepare ourselves for that through prayer. And, and we need to maintain that positive disposition to be in union with our Lord. Remember right now where the church is headed is toward the crucifixion. And Jesus was really, truly crucified. His apostles didn't like it. They didn't understand it. But now the church is going to be crucified. And we might not like it very well, and we might not understand it very well. But if we can look back and understand, as Jesus told his disciples on the way to Emmaus, that it was necessary that these things had to happen for the Messiah to enter into his glory, it is also necessary for the church. And so this has to happen. And we simply need to keep our focus on Jesus. This, of course, is also going to lead to the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. And so this is Our Lady's time. This is, this is going to be her triumph. So stay with her. She will keep you close to her son. But we know who is going to win. So running around like the Keystone Cops and being chaotic and, and just making a mess isn't going to help the matter any. Stay at peace. 
Keep the focus on Jesus and Mary, and the victory will be ours. So I could just hear uh, some of our listeners out there, some of our more, uh, who have more militant hearts, let's say, or maybe who even think more in a political, uh, from a political standpoint where they see factions in the church as political distinctives rather than a divine battle underway, right? Um, they're going to say, well, are you saying do nothing, Father? Are you, are you serious? How can I do nothing? Can't I withhold my tithes? Can't I, you know, uh, I know people are thinking this, and I know, well, there's actually movements now uh, of folks saying, um, don't, you know, don't give a dime unless they're, unless they're going to give you the sacraments or be faithful or whatever. You know, in some ways, I have to be honest, I sympathize with that. I'm not quite wired that way, and I, I want you to correct me or, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm happy to be wrong, and, and I trust your judgment. So speak to that issue. Well, first of all, I certainly am not saying do nothing. And, of course, as you said, fasting and praying is doing something quite profound. But canon law says that the people of God have a right to approach their pastors, and the primary pastor in your diocese is your bishop. You have a right to approach your, your bishop. You can make your voice heard. You can write letters. You can, you can you know, but if you do, uh, remain respectful and keep it brief. If you write a 20-page letter, he's probably not going to read it. Uh, you know, so traditionally, the way of dealing with bishops is to say, keep it to less than one page, you know, one page or less, and, uh, and, and, and maintain respect, but make clear your position. And, and you know, that, that's perfectly fine. If there's opportunity to be able to gather with some people or something, by all means do so. But, uh, but primarily, again, we have to have a Christian response. And that Christian response is one of prayer. It is one of penance. It is one of uniting ourselves with the Lord. Now, again, as far as withholding money and so on, one thing you'd have to ask yourself is, who is doing this? If it's your pastor who wants to be able to offer the Mass for you but is not being allowed to, then to withhold money from the parish isn't going to be helping anybody. You know, if you want to make the point, okay, you can tell the bishop I'm not going to support this or that, Fine, but uh, but if, if you know, I doubt that it's your local priest who is saying, "Well, and I'm just not going to say the mass for you anymore." If he's not allowed to, he's not allowed to, and and so so that's that's the point that 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 the, the priests are going to have to deal with. But withholding the money from the parish isn't going to make the point. All that's going to do is impoverish the parish. If you have a priest who really wants to take care of you who wants to provide the sacraments, but is now um, being limited by a higher authority than himself uh, in, as far as what he's able to do. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. And I think it's, it's holy advice. I, you know, I can't help but go back to this idea of prayer and fasting. You know, one of the things we do in our community in Apostle Vie is every time we go to Mass, we, rec we ask, we propose that every member of our community who can always kneel on the floor and they kneel on the floor because it's, it's fairly invisible. It's, it doesn't draw a lot of attention, but then to offer up that uh, suffering 
in reparation for a lot of these the sins of the lady. I mean, the lady are are are, are just as culpable of anyone of committing uh, sacrilege against the Blessed Sacrament or desecration. Um, but against any and all sins against the Lord. What do you think about that kind of uh, activity? Something like that is perfect. Like you said, it doesn't draw attention. Um, and and it's, it's relatively simple. It's not going to hurt anybody. Obviously, if you've had a knee replacement or something, don't right. do that. Right. But, uh, but, but, you know, it's something it, it might cause a little discomfort, but that's the idea. It's, it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a penance but it's not going to cause damage, it's not going to hurt you, and, and it's not going to call attention. You don't want to do something that you're saying, oh, look at me. You know, right. the Lord said, if you, if you do that, you've already got your reward. Right. You know? and, and so keep it hidden, keep it quiet, and, and, just, and, and it just needs to be little things. You don't have to do, you know, some huge thing. You know, well, I'll, I'll not eat for the next month or something. It's like, <laughs> well, that's kind of silly, but... You know, you might fast from a particular food that you like or from desserts or whatever it might be. There may be a day in the week or two days in the week that you want to do some more serious fasting, maybe eat only one meal a day or something along those lines. That's fine. But again, it's not going to draw attention to yourself. It's not going to, nor is it going to hurt you, you know. Uh, so so it's it's things like that, you know, small things that we can do it doesn't have to be huge, great penances. Uh, that and and of course, the best penances are the ones that God gives us. Yeah. So, if you have certain ailments, certain struggles and difficulties, use that, offer that, and don't don't waste it. Those are the things God has given to you to be able to help you to grow in holiness and unite that with our Lord. I mean, that we're we're going to talk about the Eucharist. Remember that when you go to Mass and the priest asks you to, to pray that my sacrifice and yours will be acceptable to God, your sacrifice as the lay people coming to Mass is to put your sufferings and your sacrifices on the patent with the bread, into the chalice with the wine, put it on the altar, and unite it with the sacrifice of Jesus that's being offered to the Heavenly Father. And that way, your suffering united with his sacrifice become one, and it becomes his suffering in that way because you are a member of the mystical body offering that sacrifice to the Father. So it truly is powerful. This is not just a minor little thing that we're talking about. When you're united with Jesus in the sacrifice of the Mass, it has a lot of power. Amen. Amen. You know, another idea, too, is uh, you said uh, provide the sacrifice that, or, or offer back this, the, uh, the penitence that God gives you. And one of the things he does give us that most Catholics ignore, at least by survey, is um, you know uh, fasting according to the norms of the church or according to the long-standing tradition, like on Fridays, uh, abstinence from flesh, from meat, uh, that sort of thing. So that's another way that you can do that and become more faithful. You know, I think what you're going to hear throughout all of this tonight with with Father and I is a call to a deeper holiness because a deeper holiness is a call to unite ourselves more completely and more fully with Christ. When we do that, we become, in essence, 
his hands and feet. We become his healing presence in the world. We affect the world in our prayers more dramatically, more powerfully. There are people who pray who are in the state of mortal sin where not much gets accomplished except maybe to draw them to repentance. And there are saints who pray. Uh, I just was with a family over the weekend who has a daughter who died of a, of a disease related to spina bifida who, uh, when she prays, you know, people get healed because of her holiness, because of the way that she lived her life, her devotedness to Christ. And so the, the central call that I want to draw people to in this conversation is, what is going on in the Eucharist? What is really happening at the Mass? How do we participate in that? How do we draw near to Christ in this time so that we can be a light to the world, that we can be the agents of God's grace or the channels of God's grace, if you will, to really uh, bring more light, uh, to help more people come to know him so that when we meet our final judgment, we do so and hear, well done, rather than, I don't know you. Father, let's shift gears now and jump into the Eucharist. Um, and I, you know, I, I hesitate. I know a lot of folks in our audience uh, is, are, um, you know, really well-formed. But I, I don't want to make that assumption because I think that all the data says most are not, right? Mm -hmm. So all of the surveys after survey reveal that most people don't understand what's going on at the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass. And if you don't know what's going on at the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass, you have no idea how to be reverent or what reverence is. So what is the Eucharist? Is it just... Uh, a thing we do on Sundays to help us remember Jesus? Uh, what's really going on there? Well, what goes on at Mass is literally the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. It is being offered mystically and not physically. In other words, on Calvary, he was placed up on the cross and he was physically crucified and sacrificed. In the, the Eucharist, it is a mystical sacrifice. So it is the same sacrifice, but being offered in a different way. And we must be clear, he's not being offered again at Mass. He is being offered still. There is only one sacrifice. There is only one priest. Even though there are thousands and thousands of priests around the world, there is only one priesthood, and that's the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So he is the priest he is the victim. The victim means the one who is giving his life so that others can live. And so he is the priest. He is the victim. He is the one also to whom the sacrifice is offered because he is God. And, and so what is happening at Mass is that you are literally at, mystically of course, at Calvary. Uh, for the sacrifice of Jesus. It is the single greatest event in the universe. And, and that's the part that we have to understand. It's something that because we offer Mass every day, or for many people, they will be at Mass once a week, because it's something we do over and over and over again, we lose sometimes the, the awe and the respect and the reverence uh, that, that we should have because, oh, it's the same thing we did last week. Well, do you know why it's the same all the time? The church is very clear about this. 
it's the same so that people can pray. Because if it was something different, if, you know, again, remember, you're not at mass to be entertained. If it was vaudeville, you're going to be, it's got to be something different every time. You translate have to vaudeville to tick, just for the modern young folks, TikTok. Oh, okay. It's, it's, yeah, okay. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's not, uh, it, it's not some social media thing. It's, you know, it's not entertainment. Uh, you, you are there to pray. You are there with Our Lady, with St. John, with St. Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross. Uh, and, and you are there to worship God. You know, when, when people say, I don't get anything out of it, I always say, but you receive Jesus who is all in all. He is God. You receive literally everything in the universe when you receive Holy Communion. And so you receive it all. But remember, it's not about what we get. It's about what we give. We're there to worship God. We're there to love God. Our Lord is there loving us. We don't have to worry about him. He's there to love us. We're there to love him. So that's what we have to look at is our own disposition at Mass. Are we truly praying? Are we truly loving? Are we uniting ourselves with him in the sacrifice of the Mass? Because that is what is truly happening at every single Mass. Amen. Amen. So there's some stirring out there that uh, once, you know, there, there's a one rumor that uh, the uh, seminaries of the traditional orders will be shut down and then the Latin mass will be done away with and then changes will be made to the ordinary form that begin to threaten its validity. Now this, you know, I, I only speak of the speculation not to fuel it, but to deal with it in a rational, holy, constructive way. So what I want to talk about is what uh, contrast, if you would, the distinction between uh, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, transubstantiation being the Catholic doctrine, consubstantiation being a Lutheran doctrine that have different understandings of the Eucharist. And if we see changes toward consubstantiation, you know, where do we get to where the mass is not valid? But let's start with those, the difference between trans and con substantiation. Okay, so first of all, understand when we're talking about the Eucharist, it is the substance of Jesus. So we're talking about transubstantiation. That substantiation is talking about the substance of the person of Jesus Christ. The substance is the spiritual substructure that makes something what it is. And, and so, so when we talk about the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, that means the whole person of Jesus is truly present in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, it is the substantial presence of our Lord rather than the accidental presence. What the accidents would mean would be that the physical presence. The, uh, when, when we look at ourselves, it, uh, our, the accidents are you know, uh, what are our eyes look like, what our skin looks like, what our voice sounds like, the physical attributes that we have, and so on. So in other words, if if the Eucharist were to be uh, to, as, it, as it has, like in, in Lanciano and Santarum, where it changes from bread into a piece of human flesh, that is no longer the sacramental presence of Jesus, that's now the physical presence of Jesus. 
So it's not just the substantial presence, but also the accidental presence. So all that little, little confusing perhaps, but, but it's to be able to say that when we talk about transubstantiation, uh, that literally what that means is across the substance. So the substance is changing. So the substance of bread and wine, so the spiritual underlying substructure that makes bread what it is and what makes wine what it is, that is what changes. And so it changes into the very substance of the person of Jesus. So you receive the entire person of Jesus. You don't receive a little piece of Jesus. You receive the entire person. That's what I mean by the body, blood, soul, and divinity. So the bread, what makes bread, bread, completely changes into what makes Jesus, Jesus. The outside or the external things, the accidental things, do not change because if they did and it would become a piece of flesh, we would actually be committing cannibalism, which is a violation of God's law. And, and so our Lord would not do that to us. So he gave us himself in a way that we would be able to receive him. He's the one who said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he had to give us a way to be able to do this while not violating our dignity and not violating the law of God. So that's what he has done. Now, consubstantiation, on the other hand, what that means, the word con, it means with. And so there, uh, what, what Martin Luther said is that the substance of the bread remains and the substance of Jesus comes to be with the bread. So it's both bread and Jesus at the same time. And then that, he said, would only be there for when it is being used. In other words, at communion time. And, and so, whereas we would say, no, once the consecration happens, the Lord is there until such a time that it is no longer recognizable as bread or wine in the accidents of, of those sacraments. But, you know, so in other words, after, after it, the, the Lord is, uh, after what, what would appear to be the bread has, has uh, been, uh, been taken into your body after about 20, 30 minutes, that would be completely dissolved and it would no longer be recognizable. Um, the same would be true if, if the precious blood were to spill. And, and so, you know, you'd have to wait for everything to dry. It's no longer recognizable as the accidents of wine. But otherwise, as long as it still appears as bread and wine, for instance, when the tabernacle, when, when the, the hosts are put in the tabernacle, that is Jesus. He remains there until you could no longer tell that it was bread. And, and so, so he remains present, whereas Martin Luther taught, no, he only remains present during the Eucharist. Now, another part that's different between the way that Martin Luther taught and what the Catholic Church teaches is the Catholic Church says that only a priest who stands in the person of Jesus Christ through his ordination has the ability to be able to consecrate, to bring about that transubstantiation. Martin Luther, misunderstanding, I think, a little of what, uh, what the Church teaches regarding the priesthood of all the faithful, remember that every person who is baptized into Jesus, and Jesus is priest, prophet, and king, 
So because of your baptism, you are a priest, a prophet, and a king. So Martin Luther said, well, therefore, if everyone is a priest, everyone has the ability to consecrate. And so Jesus is present only if you have enough faith to make him present. And again, it's it still remains a piece of bread, but now Jesus is there too, if you have enough faith to make him there. So it's not the Lutheran minister who causes Jesus to be present, but it is your individual faith who caught, that causes Jesus to be present. And that becomes very difficult because the Catholic Church says we need to look at things objectively. You know, when you come to Mass, you can say, was there bread and wine? Did the priest say the right words? So do you have a priest? Did he say the right words? This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. If he said that, with the right intention to consecrate, it is Jesus. And you don't have to wonder whether it's Jesus or not. Whereas if it's your own faith that's causing Jesus to be there or not, then you have to wonder, you know, gee, did I have enough faith to be able to make it happen? And But it's not about your individual faith, thankfully. There is an objective element to all of the sacraments for the good of the faithful. So why I wanted you to bring that distinction to the fore was there was two reasons. Uh, one is to help us understand what's really happening, because if we understand what's really happening, we would never approach with, um, how would you say, a lack of reverence. We would never approach in a cavalier manner. We would always be concerned about how it is that we're approaching and we're receiving the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's one reason why. The other reason is to help people understand just a little bit, lifting the hood of what's happening in another area of crisis in the church that uh, you never know could end up in the United States, which is why, uh, for instance, in the German church, they're wanting to give communion to to Protestants who do not believe and who who deny, in essence, the the te- the two thousand year old teaching of the church regarding what's really happening at mass. So if you if you have a Protestant view of the of the sacrament, which is not a real sacrament, it is not a big deal to give Protestants uh, people of other even other faiths communion. Right, because essentially it's just a symbol, and right. and according to Luther, it's only Jesus is only there if you have enough faith to make him there anyway. If you are on Another Protestant faith that's further away from Luther, um, you know, whether that's Presbyterians or Baptists or uh, you know Methodists or whatever it may be, they don't even believe that it's Jesus, and so they would simply say it's symbolic. Well, if it's just a symbol of Jesus, then who cares who comes forward to receive your symbol? It's just a piece of bread. It is nothing more than that. It's just symbolic because Jesus said, do this in memory of me. So essentially they'll say, well, we're going to eat some crackers and drink some some grape juice and we'll tell the story and we'll remember Jesus. Well, that's not what remembrance means in the Hebrew understanding of remembrance. It means make it real. And, And so that's what he's telling us do, not just tell the story and no, don't forget me after I'm gone, but rather he promised he would remain with us all days. He is there, truly present in the Eucharist, remaining with us. 
So it's not about telling the story and not forgetting, but rather it's living it. It is, it is making this real, still, not again, but still. One of the reasons I converted to Catholicism and I went through uh, various theological traditions before I came home finally was reading 1 Corinthians 11.27, which says uh, basically that um, if you eat and drink as flesh unworthily, you eat and drink damnation. Meaning, of course, I think uh, a reference back to John 6, where Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Meaning that partaking of the Eucharist is necessary for our salvation. So my thought was, if it's just a symbol, then that verse doesn't belong in the Bible. If it's just a symbol, people being sick, and St. Paul even said they were dying because of receiving in that manner, and that they were drinking damnation, made no sense if it was just a symbol. And I agree. As I always say, can, can you eat a sandwich unworthily? I mean, you can eat a sandwich <laughs> in a way that's, that's right. maybe undignified for you, but right. the bread isn't worthy of being eaten in a certain way. Right. And so St. Paul is saying, if you eat and drink unworthily, well, what, what would that mean, you know? And other than the fact that, like you said, this can't just be a symbol. There, there has to be something far greater that is there, and because in this case, someone who is far greater, infinitely so. And therefore, again, the way that we want to, to, to dispose ourselves, the disposition we have to have in coming forward and receiving our Lord is one of, first of all, recognizing his presence, and then secondly, having our hearts open to receive his gift and then giving ourselves to him as a gift. Recognizing again, he is giving himself 100% to you. He holds absolutely nothing back. You receive his entire person. And so if that's the gift he's offering as the fullness of himself, then when he tells us that we are to love God with our whole heart and soul and strength, he's not asking anything of us that God isn't already doing for us. God loves us 100%. He's asking us to love 100%. And that is seen specifically or most, most extraordinarily in the Holy Eucharist and in our union with Jesus in the reception of Holy Communion. So there's two elements I want to talk about with respect to receiving worthily and treating the Lord as he desires to be treated as truly present in, uh, in the Eucharist and through the Eucharist, is there's an external comportment that reflects an internal reality, right? Correct. So let's first talk about the internal reality what is vital for the heart of the person coming forward to receive? What is vital in terms of their disposition? And what is a disposition? Well, number one, it has to be faith. So even though, as I mentioned earlier, your faith does not make Jesus present or fail to make him present, but you have to have faith that he is there as you come forward to receive him and understand your disposition will determine the amount of grace that you receive. So this is Jesus. He is God, so an infinite amount of grace is present in the Blessed Sacrament, but you must have 
the right disposition, an openness of heart to be able to receive that grace. So your disposition will determine how much grace you receive, but your disposition does not make any difference of whether or not Jesus is there. So you have to have faith. You also must be in the state of sanctifying grace. If we receive Holy Communion in the state of mortal sin, that is a sacrilege, which means it's the worst of the mortal sins that we can commit because it's a direct violation of our Lord in the Eucharist. And so we, we must be in the state of sanctifying grace. One of the, the problems that I, that I hear of a lot these days is that, well, I, I knew I was going to be coming to confession, so I, I just went to communion because I knew I was coming to confession. It's like, no, 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 you, you have to get to confession first. You have to be in the state of grace when you receive Holy Communion. Don't receive communion because you're going to go to confession tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. So make sure that you're in the state of sanctifying grace, and then you have to have the faith, and you have to have the charity, the love for our blessed Lord in the Holy Eucharist. And obviously with the rest of the disposition, you know, we want to have, uh, we want to be free, for instance, of anger. Uh, we want to be forgiving anybody. Our Lord told us that if you, you bring your gift to the altar and realize that your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled first and then come back and, and make your offering. Well, how much more so when the offering is our Lord himself? And so, so that disposition that is there of the charity, the love of God, the love of neighbor, and, and being at, at peace and in union with our Lord because we're in the state of grace and then that union is expressed most perfectly in the reception of Holy Communion. So that's that interior disposition and of course one of humility. We are not worthy. We say that right before Holy Communion, but we need to actually believe that in the depths of our heart. We know it in our head. That's not that the head isn't the issue. The heart in this case is oftentimes where the issue is. Do we really truly believe, number one, that this is our Lord, and number two, that we are not worthy? It is a pure gift, however. So remember, it's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. There's absolutely nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy. It is a pure gift from God. That's why we say, only say the word, my soul shall be healed. And 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 so so that's when we come before him, we want the humility, we want the charity, we want the fidelity, and of course, the state of grace. So you you touched more, you spoke a little bit more about uh, the immense graces that are available to us and, and the degree, to the degree that we have faith and we're uh, humble and all of these things, a proper disposition, we receive more grace. But I think I wanna hit on before we leave this portion is what did Paul mean by eating and drinking damnation? That's the other end of the spectrum. That's when somebody comes forward in a state of mortal sin. Tell, tell, what does that mean? What it, what it means is that, again, if, if we receive Holy Communion and we are in the state of, of mortal sin, that is a sacrilege. And, and so, so it is, again, the worst kind of mortal sin that we can, can commit. And if we do not repent of that, then that's where we're going to be in condemnation. We're going to have to answer to that on the day of judgment. And, and so we can't be flippant about the way that we're receiving communion. 
And so in, in on one hand, it's not be saying, oh, well, who cares? It's just a piece of bread anyway. Uh, on the other hand, it's not saying, I know it's Jesus and well, I'm in the state of mortal sin, but that means I need him even more. So therefore I'm going to receive him because I, I need him more. It's like- Folks hear that. Folks are hearing, hearing that from the highest levels in the church. We, we are, and, and, and that's really sad. I mean, granted, we need him more because we're sinful, but we must be in the state of sanctifying grace when we receive Holy Communion because we do not want to offend our Lord any more than we already are. Or end up in hell. Right? Exactly, because if we die in that state, that's exactly where we will end up. You know, you said something that's so important and that it's so easy to gloss over. So when I uh, had the experience of covid um, I was actually talking with Father Ripperker about this the other day. He went through COVID as well, and I told him how I felt this deep spiritual darkness, like a demonic aspect to it. At least my own experience was was such. He didn't suffer as much as I did in it, but he but he noticed and and came to the same conclusion. But what was interesting when I came out uh, of that darkness, I, I got a lot of radio interviews because I was one of the early cases. And folks were wondering, and I had a very severe case. Of course, nine out of 10 people die that have my condition who get COVID. So I was intubated and all that. But when I came out, you know, I had a priest ask me, what did you see? What did you experience? And I, and I thought, well, that's an interesting question. And I wondered why he was asking me, but what was the, the powerful, the most powerful reality that came to me was, the most you said it and 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 you're you know you're 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 very well formed you know your theology you know your sacramental theology that sins against god again in the sacrament sacrilege are the most they're the worst possible mortal sins that we can commit so when i came out of covid i had this strong conviction that was slightly different than what i had before i've never been a fan of criticizing bishops or priests, that sort of thing. But um, I had the strong conviction that the people of God on the whole, and I'm speaking of primarily of the laity, are the ones committing the most problematic sins at the most, at the greatest frequency. Meaning, if you were to you know weigh all the sins of all the priests and all the bishops against all the sins of the laity, and if somehow you could physically represent them and stack them up side by side, the sins of the laity are going to are going to reach into the skies far higher than that of the clergy or bishops, because simply by the sheer number of us and relationship to you with the ratio. And how is that sin? What is that sin we're committing? We're committing sacrilege against the Lord, the highest and worst kind of mortal sin. And the Eucharist and the sacrament is the air we breathe. And it felt like the Lord was saying to me, if you're going to commit this grave sin against me over and over, and you have at your means of disposal, you every lay person can find out what the church teaches in all of this. Nobody with an internet connection has any uh, lack of culpability, right? So, if you're going to sin against me in this way, I'm going to, and, and this is the air that you need to breathe. The Eucharist is what you need to live, to, to have eternal life. 
I'm going to take away the air that you breathe. And the and in particular, of course, COVID is a disease, is a is an affliction of the lungs. And I felt my the air uh, uh, coming away from me. But I saw it as kind of a a, a judgment of, okay, if you're going to treat me this way, I'm I'm going to take away the sacrament. I you know. And I don't know if, if it's safe to ask you this question, but am I crazy? Is this rational? Am I out of my mind? No, especially, again, you, you can look back uh, in the Old Testament and the sacrifices were taken away from the people of God because of their disobedience, because of their sinfulness. And, and so God withdrew his presence from the temple. Uh, that when you, when you look at that, that happened twice in the Old Testament and it tells us literally that he withdrew from the temple. And, and boy, you think about that and you say, okay, this is how God has dealt with things in the past. God doesn't change. And so he is going to do the same thing if we refuse to be reverent, if we refuse to believe, if we, if we don't stop sinning. And, and if I might say, uh, among the laity, uh, though the probably, and this is my opinion only, but probably the sin that is committed most frequently and puts people into mortal sin and it is not being confessed is contraception. Hmm. And consequently, many, many people are in the state of mortal sin and they're receiving Holy Communion. And, and so... So that's, again, one of those hidden kinds of sins that most people wouldn't see. They wouldn't know if a person is in the state of mortal sin or not. But it's a sin that we in our society seem to have justified. Um, and for whatever reason, even though the church is very, very clear uh, about that. And, and so, so when you talk about the sins of the laity, that is probably the one uh, as well as other sins against the flesh, the pornography and and you know, the violations of one's own dignity and and so on. Uh, so so there are there are a number of things that that people fall into in in these ways uh, that 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 they're maybe not you know, because of our society they're maybe not thinking it's all that bad or everyone's doing it so it's okay or whatever. It's like no, it's not. It's a mortal sin. And then when we receive Holy Communion that way, now we're adding sacrilege to the sin. Hmm. And which again, if you're doing something like that in your marriage, you're not upholding one another's dignity. You're not approaching one another with charity. And then when you come to, to Mass, you're not approaching our Lord with charity and, and with dignity. And so, so the two of those go very closely hand in hand. Those, in fact, are the two sacraments most closely united symbolically, marriage and the Eucharist. And, and so when you look at the disposition one should have toward one's spouse, that's the disposition one should have toward the Eucharist. One of a total self-gift, one of total charity, total one of openness. seeking the good of the other, and so on. Yeah. Amen. So that's the uh, internal comportment um, disposition part, the external, which we emphasize a lot in our community, is showing reverence uh, physically, externally. One of the things that now we don't we don't command people to do this; we simply propose it. But we believe that if there are options in the church for how to receive communion, how how to receive the Lord, 
uh, that we should choose the most humble option uh, with, and, hum, and, and the idea of humility is a lowering of self, right? So if you think of, if you could, exp, if you could physically represent humility, what you would do is you would take a person and say, okay, now make yourself half your height. Now you've humbled yourself. That's, that gets to the essence of this idea. So we, uh, and uh, this is my personal conviction, uh, is that I will never receive the Eucharist standing. Uh, I will never receive the Lord in any way other than, uh, in a sense, receiving the helpless Lord, uh, helplessly myself, from the hands of the priest, kneeling, and then on the tongue. Not in any way I can control, not in any way that I can manipulate or or potentially drop the Lord. And as we know, that is the Lord. And, and the Council of Trent taught very clearly that every particle is the Lord. And so if we drop the Lord, it, it's, a, it's a kind of an abuse. So is that uh, in keep, you know, uh, in keeping with uh, an, a reverent approach to uh, the Eucharist? It is. And, and uh, again, this is my own opinion. But if I were asked, which obviously I'm not, but if I were asked with all the different problems that are going on in the church right now, if there was one thing only that you could change, what would it be? I would say get rid of communion in the hand and receive kneeling on the tongue. That would be the one change that I would make because I really believe that's where the reverence is going to come back. And if we can begin, so for the people who are watching you may be, and depending on, on what kind of parish you're going to, you may be the only person that's receiving that way. But don't underestimate the power of that. I am, um, and that is the, the example that, that other people would see. When they see that, maybe somebody else will have the courage to be able to follow. And as they say, it's not the first person that does it that's important, it's the second one. Mm-hmm. And once the second one follows, then other people will start as well. And so just persevere and show that reverence. And again, you're not doing it to impress anybody. You're not doing it to make them do it. You're doing it for the Lord. That's what you have to be focused on. This is is Jesus. This is being done for Jesus. You want to do things with the greatest reverence for our Lord. But in doing that, it will influence other people. And, and so my own belief is that if that one change were made, all kinds of other things would follow from it. Um, because, you know, the, 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 the uh, old saying, lex arandi, lex credendi, the law of praying is the law of believing. How we pray is how we believe. And so if we're standing in a bread line, sticking our hand out, we do that for hundreds of different things. Not necessarily bread, but you know, we stand in line, we put our hand out for whatever. There's only one thing that we do if we are kneeling down and putting out our tongue, that is to receive our blessed Lord. And so it reminds us that, number one, this is different from anything else that we do because it is God. Number two, it reminds us, as Dan was saying, of the humility that we should have as we approach him. And number three, it puts us then in that disposition to unite ourselves with him and helps us then to believe, you know, if this is the case, if this is the way we pray, it tells us something about what we believe. 
And so even though the teaching of the church, of course, hasn't changed, if we're standing in a line and sticking our hand out, do we really believe? Can I really believe that that's God whose scripture says holds me in the palm of his hand? I shouldn't be holding him in the palm of my hand. That's not my position to hold God in the palm of my hand. He holds me in the palm of his hand. And, and so, so do we really, again, if we're looking at it saying, what do we believe even by the way that we're doing this, by the external comportment. And so, so if we, again, if you, if you can't kneel, that's one thing that's always been understood by the church. There have always been people who are unable to kneel. They would stand and they would reverently receive on the tongue. But if that one change were made for at least generally speaking, that everybody would receive kneeling down and on the tongue, I think we would see a huge change in the church in general because of what that is going to start doing to people's minds and hearts and turning them to a greater respect and reverence for our Lord and a greater understanding of the teaching of the church. All right, so I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll get to Q&A time. So from the standpoint of you as a priest who's giving communion out, is it easier... So, you know, I, I actually, I wanted to say it and have you react to it because I, I want to say it from a standpoint of the lady. So I'm just going to say it that way. So here's my, my opinion. You just tell me if I'm crazy. If I truly wanted to mitigate the spread of disease in this context, and I were a priest, here's what I would want. I would want you to kneel. Why? Because I don't want you to move, Right? Because we don't want to touch in any way, you know, it, let's just say I'm with my hands or on the tongue. Let's just say it doesn't matter. I'm not, I don't believe that, but let's say that. If we really didn't want to spread disease, that would be the command. Why? Because if you're kneeling, you're not moving as much as you are when you're standing. You're more predictable because you're, you're on your knees. You're not as mobile. It just works that way. Now, when people hold out their hands to receive communion, most of the time, their hands are cupped. You tell me if I'm wrong, but that's that's what I see, which means to me that it's harder for you without dropping the Lord to give them the Lord without touching their hands. So it's more likely you're going to touch their hands than a person kneeling on the tongue. So to me, rationally, if you want to stop the spread of disease and deal with COVID, you and that's really your goal, which I, you know, I'm skeptical about that. I mean, you're, I, not you, but I'm skeptical of others. If that's really your goal, you would say not forbidding receiving on the tongue, but insisting on it, kneeling. Am I crazy? No, actually, I can tell you from my own experience, um, number one, when people receive on the hand, uh, if you want to say you have to make sure that you're, you don't want to touch them, then you have to drop the host. Right. And, and that, that I, I just can't do. And so then the other thing that happens is I can tell you, I wind up touching almost every single hand. Say that, that again. Is, you, I'll say it for you. He winds up touching every single hand. Right. And then think of where your hands have been. Are you serious? You know? and, and so because in order to put the, the host down on somebody's hand and, you know, and your fingers underneath the host, Right. The back of my finger hits almost every hand. It is very, very rare 
that my finger touches anybody's tongue. Yep. Now, one thing for people who aren't accustomed to receiving on the tongue, um, please, just as Dan was saying, keep everything still. Yeah. In other words, don't jut forward all of a sudden when the priest is about to put the, the, the host on your tongue because otherwise you lick right up the back of his hand. Uh, and, and so just keep your head still and put your tongue out and the priest will just put the host on your tongue. And you know, the vast majority of people at the parish where I'm at now receive on the tongue. We receive at the communion rail, so they receive kneeling down. And it would be very, very rare that I will touch anybody's tongue. But when people receive in the hand, I touch almost every single hand. Hmm. And and so, so, yes, if it's about trying to make sure that you're not spreading anything, yeah, being receiving on the tongue actually is is much more uh, safe that way uh, than, than receiving on the hand as well yeah. as more reverent in my mind. And I don't want to be crass or gross, but you know, I don't, I don't open doorknobs with my tongue. I don't flush the toilet with my tongue. I don't, you know, you know, the t- you're just, you know, people don't realize how dirty and, and bacteria laden your hands are. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, more, the more that COVID went on, the more that there was the public announcements for, you know, please wash your hands frequently or use, you know, the sanitizer, because obviously that's that's where a huge percentage of the, the spreading comes. All right. So let's shift now to Q&A, because you and I have talked for quite a while and you've done an amazing job. I really appreciate your your clarity and your conviction. It's such an encouragement to hear a good priest like you um, speaking to us about this. But let's go to questions. And I don't know, are you going to put those up on the screen, producer lady? OK, go ahead. And I'll read them, and then uh, so the audience make sure the audience who are just listening can hear. So, how do you get past wanting to feel something deep in the heart while attending ma- the mass with attention and reverence? Well, first of all, it's keeping in mind that that it's not about the feelings or the emotions. You know, some people think, "Oh, I, I should I should be filled with so much emotion with what's going on," but that's that's not the case. Actually, what the Lord will do is even take that away as you go as you go deeper in prayer because that's the emotions are part of our body and the lord wants us to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of our soul so he will take away the emotional reactions the feelings all that kind of stuff that doesn't mean that you're losing your reverence or that you're not loving him as much in fact it should mean that you're loving him more and and so so it's a matter of simply saying i'm there to love him i i would you know to, to point it out, I mean, for most of you who are married, you don't always have deep emotional things be, about your spouse. You know, when you when you say good morning or, or whatever, it, it's not with a lot of emotion. It doesn't have to be. You love that person, and you don't love the person less because you don't feel all kinds of gushy feelings. And I would point that out to the kids in school. I'd say, look, you know, who do you love more than anybody? Probably your mom. So when you go home from school, do you say, oh, mom, oh, it's like, and the kids go, oh, that's gross. It's like, right. But you love your mom immensely, but you don't have an emotional reaction about it. And so the same would be true with our Lord. The more that we love him, actually, the less emotion that's going to be there. Once in a while, there might be something the Lord will do, you know, providing a consolation or whatever. But most of the time, it's just going to be quiet and and you won't feel anything but the fact you're not feeling anything doesn't mean that nothing is happening it's just it's happening at a much much deeper level 
and something actually much, much more profound is happening. Yeah, you, you sound like a good Carmelite. You know, John of the Cross says that when he wants to take us out of meditation to contemplation, it's to give, it's to raise us up to a higher kind of loving that is not encumbered by our senses, and our, it, it's not hindered or uh, limited by our senses. And so this kind of deeper love, another analogy that I love is I had a friend who's passed away now, whose wife was an invalid for the last 20 years of his life, and he took care of her, and she gave him nothing. And I, I have to tell you, <laughs> I love my wife dearly. I, I've never seen a deeper kind of love of a man for his wife. He bathed her every day. He carried her everywhere he went. He cared for her personally. He didn't hire someone. And he got nothing back from her. That's the kind of love that the Lord is trying to teach us, this really pure and holy love that cannot come. And his action often, even though it's helped early on in our spiritual life by uh, stimulus, if you will, of good feelings, and he does give us that gift, later on it becomes a hindrance. And if we understand that, then when we feel nothing, we can rejoice and just say, I love you, you know, for, for mm -hmm. all that you are, uh, not what you give me. I love you, Jesus, my love, you know. All right, next question. Is it reverent to have actual loaves of leavened bread consecrated, broken, and given to the parish? So listen, I'm a, I'm a converted Jew, Father. I... I understand that there's some, I'm a Hebrew Catholic, so I understand there's some rites that use leavened bread. I find it outrageous because that's not what happened at the Passover. They did not use leavened bread. No. No, they didn't. And, uh, and actually, in the Latin rite, that would be forbidden. Mm -hmm. um, it probably wouldn't cause the, 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 uh, the bread, in that case, the Eucharist, to be invalid, but depends on how much stuff they put in it. It is supposed to be only wheat flour and water and nothing else. And, and so in the Eastern Rites where they do use some leavened bread, they also uh, put little cubes in, uh, they, they cut it up into little cubes and put it into the chalice. They actually use a spoon for, uh, for, for distribu distribution of communion so they don't have particles. And so when you have a loaf of, of bread, you're going to have lots and lots of particles falling all over the place. And, Jesus and so is it more reverent? I would say generally not. Yeah, I agree. And Jesus gets trampled underfoot, and it's not. Uh, it's specifically forbidden in uh, uh, in the church to do that, right? Right, it, it is. Yeah. Next question is, how am I to properly respond if a priest refuses to give me the host on my tongue? So we'll give two answers one from your perspective and one from mine, because this has happened to me a number of times, because I only receive on the tongue. I'm never disrespectful to the priest. I don't cause a stir. If he says, stand up, I, I say I can't receive that way very quietly. And if he says, no, then you're not going to receive, which has happened to me multiple times, then I just cross my arms and quietly walk away and go to my seat and pray. And I, you know, and then if it's Sunday, I fulfilled my Sunday obligation by being present and participating in the sacrifice of the Mass without receiving the Eucharist. But so that's from my standpoint as a layperson. Where where are you? What's your perspective as a priest? Well, first of all, the priest does not have a right to tell you that you cannot receive that way, and the Church has made that very clear. Um, and and so you have put it the other way. 
you have an absolute right to receive Holy Communion on the tongue. You have a, re a right to receive communion on your knees and, and no one can tell you otherwise. Uh, if he does say, nope, I'm not going to do that, as Dan said, best thing is not make a big issue out of it because then you're just going to disrupt everybody else who's praying. It's wrong for him to do that. It's unjust for him to do that. But at that point then, again, as we were talking about earlier, the sufferings, the sacrifices, you can offer that to the Lord. You're still making a spiritual communion. It was still your intention to be able to receive our Lord. And, and so you can offer that to our Lord in that way. So tragically, you didn't receive the Eucharist, but making a spiritual communion, you still receive the grace uh, that, that would have been given in the Eucharist uh, had you received. And, and so you can still be united with our Lord in that way. Yeah. The, um, the other thing that's going on, and I, I think uh, in terms of politics in particular and the suppression of the faith and then being in places where the faith is not allowed to be practiced in a way that is in keeping with the longstanding tradition of the church is many Catholics, I think, are going to need to move in the coming years and months, months and years. And uh, I love living in Alabama. Um, we're we're <laughs> have very much a freedom spirit here in the United States, but uh, you may have to find a parish and and move and change your job and do whatever you need to do to be able to worship freely, to be able to live in a safe way where you can live out your faith. I wanted to stop and mention here, if I could have the producer put up apostoleva.org. That's the community that I belong to. Uh, in fact, uh, Father Altier has graciously spent a lot of time preparing uh, uh, very sound teaching that he's given to us to give away in apostoleva.org on the fundamentals of the faith. If you want to check out that course, uh, which is beautifully done, go to apostoleva.org. And as well, as a community, and there are good communities out there, other good communities you should join, Carmelites and Franciscans that are faithful to the magisterium. I'm saying find one, you need one. If you don't know of one that's orthodox and faithful or you don't have one in your area, you can try to start one or you can check out apostoleva.org. Faithful to the magisterium, a lot of on-fire Catholics. Um, that's why we like hanging out with Father Altier. So check that out. We have we have we have uh, groups and counter groups that meet all over the all over the world now, and we'd love to to have you check that out. All right, next question for Father: How do you bring back loved ones to the Mass without them being able to receive the Eucharist? Uh, or invite them to the church. I, it's a little hard to understand the question. Um, well, the the thing with that is is you know certainly just invite them to come to mass, but then let them know that you know until they've been to confession, they wouldn't be able to receive holy communion. Now, having said that, make sure you do that before mass. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it at communion time. Uh, and if they're going to get up and receive communion anyway, at that point, don't make a scene. Um, so in other words, the church says at that point, it's better just to let them receive, even though it's a sacrilege, because again, you don't want to disrupt everybody else in their prayer. Uh, and, and so, so they have been told you have done your part, you know, that they've been told and, and, and then that's on their conscience ultimately. Um, but, but it's generally a matter of, of inviting them to come to mass, 
but then just reminding them gently and kindly, you know, not in a condemn condemning way, but just remind them that, you know, until you've been to confession, that you can't receive Holy Communion. As well, if they're Protestants, you know, obviously they can come to Mass with you, but they can't receive communion and they can't go to confession. So they, uh, and the reason for this is the part of something we didn't talk about earlier with respect to proper disposition is one of being in union with the church, with Jesus himself, with the church. So if you're not in union with the church and you come forward, essentially you're, you're committing a lot of different kinds of sin. You're lying, uh, you're, uh, and you're committing sacrilege. So what we say to a Protestant brother and sister is, I'd really love for you to attend Mass. Um, communion is reserved for those who agree with all of the teachings of the church who've been through formal initiation, have been baptized, or their baptism has been validated. And the reason for all of that is because we love you. We don't want you to eat and drink damnation, but instead we want you to receive all the grace that you can receive. So if you want to go to RCA, I'll go with you. So you can say it in a very loving way that doesn't uh, uh, push people away. And one other thing you can do too, you know, some of you may be old enough to remember the days when hardly anybody went to communion. Now we're doing the exact opposite. And, and so if somebody might feel self-conscious by sitting in the pew, tell them just come forward to the priest, put their hands up over their heart like this, which is an indication to the priest that, to just give them a blessing or even ask the priest, please, just a blessing. And, and then the priest will give them a blessing so they can come up in the communion line. They don't have to stay in the pew that way. And that would be true whether somebody's Catholic or Protestant. Anybody can come up and receive a blessing even if they can't receive Holy Communion. Amen. Very good. Question, next question. How long does the physical presence of Jesus stay in my body after receiving the Holy Eucharist? Well, again, it's not the physical presence of Jesus, but uh, but I understand the question. Uh, so so it, it's literally, it's as long as the accidents of the bread uh, remain uncorrupted. So that's somewhere about 20 minutes to 30 minutes someplace uh, is what has has normally been taught. Uh, so so until till it would break down in your stomach is really what it would come down to. Next question. How can we most respectfully talk to priests who think that demi- denying communion to those who kneel to receive is promoting unity and worship? Now that's that's a very interesting question. I like the the heart of that person because they want to honor the priest but they want to try to convince them of uh, one of the, you know, one of the central teachings of the church. Uh, that's a tough nut to crack, but uh, you have some advice there. Well, first of all, again, when they're, when they're trying to say that this is promoting unity, you know, remember the back in, in the seventies and eighties, they're saying everybody needs to stand because we all have to be in union. It's like, um, you know, the unity has to do with our belief Right. not our bodily posture right. and uh and and so but but the the thing i would do is is simply say bring in the documents uh again remember in the church everything is in writing and so there are documents that are there that say that the people have a right to receive communion kneeling a priest cannot deny them holy communion uh if they're kneeling and, and receiving on the tongue that way it's not your opinion versus his opinion you're coming in with the teaching of the church. You can approach him uh, again with with respect and and just say, you know, I was 
doing some research and 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 you know perhaps you're you're not aware of this and I, and here's what I found and and be able to to give that to him so that that he knows uh, and and hopefully would uh, would then be willing to say okay I I can't keep denying people this because this goes against what the church teaches. You know, one of the things we tell folks in our community uh, in Apostoli VA is, you know, and this has happened a number of times because we promote reverence, we promote sound teaching uh, on on uh, liturgy, the Eucharist, all of these things, is fast. So take a month and fast for your priest. Take up some fast daily or, you know, just something that's pretty constant for 30 days. During that 30 days, make sure you send five notes of compliments. Find five things, five separate times that you appreciate about that priest and send them a note. And then by the time you're done, either you're going to be holier and figure out you may or may not be right, or you'll be ready to go in with humility and in the spirit of the Lord to honor that priest. As you've noted, uh, well, I've had this happen to me, and I went to my bishop because I knew the bishop because uh, I had converted in his diocese. And I, 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 the in the mass I went to, the penitential rite was omitted, and so I took the doc. I knew what the church taught because that's part of my conversion, but I didn't go in saying, you know, bishop, this priest is an idiot, and he, he did this, and he's bad. I said, bishop, uh, the penitential rite was omitted. In this case, this is what I think I understand the church teaches. You know, I was just being as humble as I could be. Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I don't, maybe it's appropriate. You could you could omit it in this case, but it was a normal mass. Um, and and then uh, and he said, "Are you the only? You know, are you the only one who is of that opinion?" I said, "No, I have a couple of my friends. In fact, they're converts." Kind of went. Hey, what happened to uh, you know the curie or whatever? And um, they didn't see it either. And he said, "Okay, well, you go talk to the priest and approach him the same way you approach me, and let me know what he says." You know, so it, it can be done. And I wasn't branded as a you know a, a you know a, a traditionalist wacko because I was gentle, humble. Does that make sense? It does, and I, I think that's that's the thing. You know the. Uh, Generally speaking, I would say the, the the sin of the priest is pride, and uh, and and so if you can come in a very humble way, then you're not going to be locking horns, you're not clashing pride versus pride, but the humility and the gentleness with which you do it is going to to bring him down rather than have his guard up. It's going to bring him to to a more humble approach as well. And if he sees that you're presenting something humbly. Hopefully he can accept it and receive it that way and and respond in like manner as well. You know, recently even I had a, there's a very reverent mass here in in, in uh, Birmingham and the priest is known for his liturgical soundness. But during daily mass, we were not using a communion patent and I, and I had already built a good relationship with him. I regularly sent him notes of appreciation and I went and said, hey, Father, Sacrosanctum Concilium says that we should retain the, Use the patent. I'm just curious. Have you ever considered implementing that during daily mass? And he said, "Well, he said it's kind of thin with help. How would you go about that?" So we had a dialogue about it, you know. And then one day I went to daily mass, and it was there. And uh, and I I uh, I sent him a note after mass. I said, "Thank you, 
father, he said, I could tell you were pleased when you received and just a beautiful relationship. You know, there's, it's not, you know, it's not him against me, but I think it's most important to pray because that gets your heart and mind ready. It also prepares the heart and mind of the priest. Um, if he's open to that and, uh, you're going to have a much more positive experience or you're going to keep your mouth shut because you know, you're not humble enough to go. And I'm not saying I'm a humble person, by the way. I, but I do have a high, a great reverence for priests and respect for priests and bishops, um, even when I don't agree with them. So, all right, what's our next question? We believe that we receive Jesus in Holy Eucharist. Since the three persons are one, do we receive? Do we receive all three persons in the Holy Eucharist? And the answer to that is yes. And so. So you receive the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus. So the body, the blood, and the soul are the humanity. The divinity is shared equally by all three persons of the Most Holy Trinity. And outside of the Godhead itself, all things of the Trinity are done in, in one. So all three persons are present wherever one is present. So in reality, yes, when you receive the divinity of Christ along with his body, blood, and soul, you're receiving all three persons of the Most Holy Trinity. Very good. Next question. What exactly is one supposed to do if you're receiving in the hand and the host accidentally drops on the floor? Should I pick it up and consume it first? Stop receiving in the hand. But what's the next answer, Father? <laughs> The, the next part of that answer would be, yes, you can, you can certainly do that. Um, the, other, the other possibility is that you know, the priest can, can pick up the host. There should be, uh, somebody should come out with a purificator uh, that, that is, is wet and, and, uh, and then um, mop up the ground, the, the floor, where in case there were any particles uh, that, that fell. Uh, or that are that are broke off and are on the ground. So use a purificator, which is the the uh, the, the the cloth that is is on the chalice that the priest would would clean out the chalice, uh, and so so that would be done. So either yes, you can if you're going to be receiving in the hand, I guess you're going to be touching the Lord anyway. Uh, so you could either pick up pick up the host, or the priest can pick up the host and. You know, because again, some people would say, well, now it, it fell on the floor. Well, then what the, what the priest would do is is put that into a vessel with some water in it, and then it would begin to uh, to to separate. And after two or three days, it would it would be uh, completely separated and then could be put down the sacrarium, which is is the the little drain that that goes into the ground, so it doesn't uh, doesn't go into the into the into the sewer system. But just right into the ground. So, so either way of that can be done. Next question. What are the best ways for parents to instill a deep reverence of the Holy Mass and Eucharist in our children? That is a great question. Well, first of all, to do it. You know, the kids will do what you do, not necessarily what you say. So you have to teach them by word, but most importantly, you have to teach them by example. Mm -hmm. And and so make sure that they understand to the degree that they're able uh, that that truly is Jesus and that Jesus is God. And, and that's why we want to have this reverence and to understand that this is the single greatest privilege in the universe to be able to receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. And consequently, the way that we approach him 
needs to be one of, of just with the greatest reverence, the greatest respect. You know, if if you had, if, if, if you have, well, I guess we all will one day, if we have the opportunity to stand before Jesus, ask yourself, what is your, what's your disposition going to be? You know, I think about that frequently when we think of St. John, who is our Lord's closest friend on earth, put his head, his head on our Lord's chest at, at the Last Supper and so on. When he saw Jesus in glory, he fell on his face. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, hey, buddy, how are you? You know, mm -hmm. great to see you again. It's been a while. None of that. No, no. He fell on his face. And so if we truly recognize the Lord present, we want to have that disposition. He isn't just our little pal. He is our Lord and our God. And yes, he is the best friend we could ever have, but we must always remember that he is God. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And we have to have that kind of reverence and respect. And if we, if we look at somebody on the human level, you know, you could, you know, traditionally say the king or the queen or the president of the United States or whomever. If you have the opportunity to meet that person, you put on some nice clothes. You're going to, you know, have a, a proper comportment. Isn't that the way we should be with our Lord even more? So, so that's what we want to look at again is just teaching the kids by both word and especially by example. Yeah. Just a few notes from a parent, uh, get, Head, get moved to church early, get moving to church early. Uh, if you're always wrestling with the kids, then, you know, sometimes I know a guy who taught his kids at home how to sit still. He got a little bench and he would reward them for the longer they could sit still mm -hmm. until they would sit still as long as they normally would in church. And then, of course, and they learned really young and were very good in church. So do that. Um, another one is go, get there early and pray and kneel and pray and don't talk to your neighbor as if this is a social gathering. Talk to God because that's who the one you're going to meet. Sh demonstrate to your children and help them to do the same and teach them the prayers that you're praying. Prayer the, pray the prayer of St. Ambrose or St. Thomas Aquinas before Mass. Um, show them you're praying. I, ha I have an autistic son and he would struggle with attention, so I would take his little index finger and I would say the words and point to each of the words as I was praying it, and that helped him to pay attention. The other thing is stay after Mass. So receive reverently, kneeling and on the tongue, uh, and then stay after Mass for Thanksgiving. And, and again, show them why you're doing that. Uh, teach them outside of Mass, a great program uh, by Brant Petrie on the Eucharist is absolutely amazing. It's a great teaching. Father Altier has got great stuff on the Eucharist. Um, listen to them if they're old enough and talk with your kids about them and talk about how and why this is the most important moment of every week, whether we go on Sunday, which is the most important, or we go daily, uh, teach them outside. A lot of work, the best work you can do is preparation outside and then how you comport yourself inside can be very powerful. Next question. What can you do to increase devotion to God in the Eucharist when there is no adoration and fewer masses in Latin and vernacular? You know, I would extend this question to, you know, I, I, I've said this before. So our diocese is, is a real mix. We have this wonderful priest in, in the name Father Jerebic in the cathedral. 
but there's a mass close to me where every at every mass, I would say the vast majority of masses, there's some kind of abuse, whether it's of the use of what are extraordinary ministers or you know the laity or the or the priest or whatever. So what do we do? Can you put that question back up for me? What can we do to increase devotion to God in the Eucharist when there's no adoration, fewer masses in Latin and vernacular, or just a lot of goofy stuff going on? Well, the, the, the main thing uh, in that way is you can certainly talk with some of the other people, some of your friends that you know, but again, it's being reverent yourself, being yeah. the example to others, and, and, you know, and then having the opportunity, hopefully, to explain to them why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, that, you know, you used to come to Mass and, and we would chat, and now you're not doing that anymore. How come? you know, or whatever, and, and just, again, the way you carry yourself. And so even if there is not adoration, if you can get to the church to pray, most churches, even if they're locked up, you can go to the, if you go during regular business hours or something, they'll usually let you into the church to pray. So even though there's not adoration per se, that the Lord is there in the tabernacle and, and you can you can go in and pray. Uh, and if that's not possible, there actually are a couple of places online that have live adoration. Uh, and so even though you're not physically present there, nonetheless, you know, on your computer screen, you can actually have a live feed of an adoration chapel. Uh, and so you can spend time in prayer before our Lord, even though, again, you're not you're not physically present with him at that point, nonetheless. You know, you're recognizing his presence in the Eucharist and you are worshiping him and adoring him as such. And so the, the more that we can, we can dispose our own hearts and souls, the, the more reverence we're going to have. And consequently, the more we're going to be able to, to, to be a good example to others. We'll, ask, we'll answer a few more questions. I want to invite you guys again out to apostolivia.org. If you're looking for a faithful community and you don't have one in your area and you want to get this kind of a teaching, this kind of teaching as a norm, we meet uh, every other Saturday morning for group of formation at eight o'clock central and it's free and all the resources are free, including more teaching from Father Altier and links to other works that he, other teaching that he provides, apostoleva.org and it's a private association of the faithful. We'd love to have you come join us if you if you haven't done so yet. Things are getting tough. You need to draw to community somewhere. We'd love to see you there or find a, a good faithful community in your neighborhood. It's really important. Uh, next question. How does one deal with the irreverence of others during Mass? I always bring a slingshot, Father. And <laughs> and and uh, and of course that's that's how I deal with it. Is that uh, that's not appropriate? It's a lot. Well, that would be slightly irreverent by right. itself. But uh, <laughs> uh, again, depending on on who it is, do you know the person well enough to say something to them? Um, you know, sometimes you can just you know kind of you know just quietly just look at them and put your finger up. You know, to, you know, or you can. You know, if it's somebody who wants to talk to you, you can say, could we go out to the foyer and talk, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and just, again, try try to maintain as much of, of your own composure as you can. Make sure you're maintaining the charity and, and such, but, you know, continue to pray. Even even if they're carrying on and they won't go out and, and so on, just continue to pray. 
and and you do the best you can. You know, again, you're showing the Lord by your uh, by by your effort that you want to be there praying, and and He will reward that even if you can't pray well, as we would say, because of the distractions of everybody else. But nonetheless, you're making that effort, and and He will bless you for that. And you can offer up that that uh, suffer, your own suffering in the distraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the salvation of souls and in reparation in particular, I think more importantly in reparation for the sins against the Lord, um, the lack of charity shown in so many parishes for those who are trying to pray and who don't have that much time to be in church every week. Um, we It really ought to be a place where we're focused on God and letting others do the same. Uh, next question. We have a time just for a few more. Can Can one still be united to Jesus mystically while watching a virtual online mass and making a spiritual communion? And the answer to that is yes, because you actually are united with Jesus as long as you're in the state of grace. And so, so you, you are a member of Jesus Christ because of your baptism. And as long as you're in the state of grace, there is a mystical union that is there. And then when you make the spiritual communion, then again, you're, you're receiving those graces of communion even without having received our blessed Lord. So, so there are differing forms of presence. Even we can use the example we're doing right now. You're seeing something over a computer screen. So there's a certain presence that is there between Dan and myself. That would be different than if we were just talking on the phone, which would be different if we were face to face. So, so you have, our, our Lord, if you're there at Mass, obviously, you are with him and you can receive him. Um, but if it's watching in a virtual Mass, you can still be united with the sacrifice. You can still offer yourself. You can still receive a spiritual communion. You're not just able to receive him uh, in, in sacramentally. So his, you know, so, so you, you can receive you know, a spiritual communion. There's still a mystical union. There's not a sacramental union at that moment because, because you didn't receive the sacrament. So it's just a different presence of our Lord in that way. Is it, is it safe to say that he's just not going to deprive you? He's never, if your heart is disposed to him and you're doing your best you can, the best that you can to get to Mass, and if it's not available to you in your area and you just can't go, He's not going to deprive you the graces you need for your salvation. Exactly. And and he's never going to be outdone in generosity. So if you're making the effort to to be with him, he will be even more so with you. And if you want some good prayers and, and guidance on um, a spiritual communion prayer, you can find it at apostolyva.org, as we've mentioned, or spiritualdirection.com. Are we going to put this video, this recording up at spiritualdirection.com so folks can... Um, can uh, share it with their families maybe later on, that sort of thing. So when will that be posted in the next few days or what do you think? So pretty quick, they're telling me. So spiritualdirection.com for folks who want to share this with family and friends and help them in their devotion to the Lord. One last question, Father, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, And the producers are debating on which one. They're trying to give you the best question for the last. They're still talking Wrinkled noses, listening, whispering, and uh, did as long you as they don't out? play rock paper scissors or something right, to figure right. it out, that's it's because they love the audience. They love you. They want to serve, so they're kind of trying to figure out the. Here we go. I've been taught as a child that I have 
that I could have reconciliation up to eight days after receiving communion as long as I had true contrition. So I've advised people to do the same. Am I in sin for that? I think what she's saying is um, I've been taught as a child that I could have reconciliation up to eight days after receiving communion. Does that mean, I don't know, Father, do you make sense of that? Yeah, so let's be clear about what that means. So so the eight days, which actually has been extended to 20 now, is is for the reception of an indulgence. Right. Um, but not with regard to receiving communion if you're in the state of mortal sin. So, so if you're in the state of mortal sin, you still have to receive communion or you have to receive confession before you receive communion. Every time. Right. Every time. Every time you commit a mortal sin. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so if the question has to do with receiving, you know, the indulgence, it used to be uh, and has been for years that that it was eight days either side, either before or after doing whatever was necessary for the indulgence, which included receiving communion. And then now it has been extended out to twenty days. Uh and and so so but that's for an indulgence, not for getting back into the state of grace, so you may uh, so, need to, the person may need to go to confession for that. If they exactly, understood. yeah. Um, I just uh, want to conclude by saying this: I uh, I really appreciate you, Father Altier, and I and I will say to you out there: if you've got a priest like Father Altier serving you, um, giving his life uh, for the church and for you, give him everything you got. Give him every penny you got. Give him every free minute you've got. Love him, serve him, protect him, pray for him like crazy because they, priests, faithful priests are very much under attack in our time. And if you don't have a priest like Father Altier, find one and support him. I, I we're 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 no longer uh, at a time in the church I think where uh, it's very difficult. Uh, and I don't like the idea of abandoning parishes, you know, that have bad catechesis, and maybe you're the only one who can help. But I, I, I'm leaning more toward this idea of we need uh, to, to survive the difficulties that are coming. We need to be near and close to those who, when we look across the table, like we are doing now at Father Altier, we see people who believe with all that they are and who are giving all to Christ because we're going to need every ounce of strength that we have to make it through uh, the difficulties that are coming. And we will, and we will prevail, and we can do so joyfully in Christ, as long as we're living the way that he taught us to live, and we're living as authentic disciples of Jesus. Father, any last words, and then maybe you're, give us your blessing. Well, and I can take that other part from the priest's perspective. I can tell you that in the parishes over the last year, that that the priest made the effort to keep things open, to uh, to to be able to continue hearing the confessions of people and and get them the sacraments, those parishes are bursting. Yep. The parishes where the priest ran away and was not there for the people, the people are not coming back, mm-hmm. uh, and and those parishes are are you know are, are way down in their numbers. And so so the people recognize obviously if this priest is willing to sacrifice for them they will be sacrificing for him as well. Amen. And that's the beauty of we are in this together. Amen. And, and that's, you know, and, and the priest has to be there for the people of God. He's there for God first and foremost. He has to be there for the people. And, and I have always been convinced, and I have always said with regard to the priest, 
You take care of the people, they'll take care of everything else. You don't have to worry about anything. Just take care of the people and, and do what you're supposed to do as a priest. Keep up your prayer life and do all the things you should do, but take care of the people. They'll handle everything else. So, you know, Father, if we were in a room, there are thousands of people who registered for this webinar. If we were in a room uh, with them, I'm pretty sure you'd get a standing ovation. <laughs> so what I'll do is, uh, because people can't clap, I'd ask that you'd say a prayer for Father Altier and uh, offer up something for him and for all faithful priests like him. I know many, God be praised, Father Jerebic here in, in Birmingham, Father Booth, many others who are just awesome priests who are giving their lives away to God, making such great sacrifices for us and fighting a, a difficult battle on their end of the spectrum as well in the midst of all the craziness going on. Father, would you close us in your with your blessing? Absolutely. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Commending all of you to the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the intercession of St. Joseph, the protection of St. Michael, the guidance of your guardian angels, and the intercession of your patron saints, Benedictio de Omnipotentis Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti, Descendat Supervos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Father. Great to see you. Great to be with you. God bless you. God bless you. Thanks, Dan.